0: Podcast chronicling one grad student's quest not to keep on refreshing Twitter and tearing his hair out about the upcoming constitutional crisis in the world that he actually lives, and instead focus on studying for his comprehensive exams. Now, this morning, let me tell you, it has been hard to study. Uh, right now, my studying really boils down to looking over my old notes, copying them down on note cards and asking myself big questions. And it is tedious and boring. And also more than that, the actual stuff that I learn from this is difficult. It requires me thinking really hard and making connections about topics that I've been working on that I haven't already thought of, which, you know, takes effort. And I have been increasingly distracted by the news. I, uh, this morning, have tweeted more than I've ever tweeted in my entire life. Uh, I have been watching YouTube videos of Kellyanne Conway, and I have been constantly refreshing political, just waiting for the next shoe to drop about this constitutional crisis that we are quickly entering into. Now, it's weird following all this stuff having been immersed in history for so long, because one of the things that you notice is that most crises that people have don't make it into the history books. Most worries that happen, most of the things that people freak out about end up not being something that people actually care about in the future. Who remembers the 1733 excise crisis, for example? Very, very unlikely that I will even be asked about the 1733 excise crisis. Who remembers the execution of Admiral Bing? Very, I will probably not have to talk about the execution of Admiral, Admiral Bing, but it was an incredibly important moment at the time. However, there are some moments that trouble history. There are some moments that actually rise above Uh, the usual everydayness of every day, and become turning points. The weird thing is, it's, I think, impossible to know at the time whether we're living through a moment like the hubbub about the Earl of Sandwich's mistress getting assassinated in the late 18th century, or whether we're dealing with a moment like the Declaration of Independence. I don't know whether in a month we will still remember the firing of James Comey. I don't know whether in a year we will see this as a decisive turning point. What I do know is that it's possible that this is a turning point. It could be that this is uh, the moment when things change. And that scares me, because I also know that when things change big, they're unpredictable. So let's now shift gears and, and actually talk about history. Um, I'm going to be starting another uh, four-episode miniseries. Uh, in these miniseries that I've been doing to uh, revise for the actual exam that's coming next Tuesday, I've been making summaries of the really big ideas that I've gotten from each list so that I can rattle them off when I'm asked these questions on the exam. We've gone through the 18th century and the 19th century of British history. We've hit the big architecture of the stuff that I'm curious about. And now we're going to be moving on to my thematic fields. For the next four episodes, I'm going to be talking about the development of the urban environment in the 19th century. This first episode, I'm going to start with a problem. And that problem is what I've been calling non-humans in history. First, I'm going to talk about why that is a philosophical problem for environmentally minded historians. Then I'm going to try to show uh, how non-humans have affected history in particular concrete ways that I hope actually still allow humans to have some sort of freedom and agency and don't just make us pawns in the great, you know, materialist game of life. I'll be talking about drugs and pollution, both of which I think are interesting ways that we can see how changes in material life directly affect human experience. Then I'm going to close with talking about how these examples are still not perfect, how they still don't help us entirely solve the problem of writing history in an era of global climate change. And then I'm just going to, for the sake of it, Um, give a data dump of a bunch of other examples that I could have uh, drawn on for this episode. So let's talk about why I think that it's important to talk about non-humans in history. I think that the big challenge that historians are going to have to tackle over the next generation is the fact that human history seems to be entering into a new scale. We've called this In the past, the Anthropocene, the idea that in the past 100, past 45, past 300 years, depending on your politics, human activity has become a geological factor. We are altering the very epoch of the earth. And this does a bunch of weird things to the study of history. First, it makes it so that it becomes more difficult to make a kind of big narrative claim about history that we're studying the past in order to understand the future. This has two problems. The first is that, well, if we're saying that everything changes drastically with the mineral economy, that we're entering into a new era of uh, ecological damage, then we are admitting that the past is no longer a model for what happens in the future. And the second and more troubling is that we actually start to lose the hope for a future that we could have had. A lot of the other big motivating philosophies or ideologies that historians have grasped onto in the past to make their narratives have at the heart of them a belief in the future National histories are talking about the development of a national body whose expression is going to help people make political decisions. The story of America, for instance, is often told as a great unfolding of human liberty, even by those who deeply critique it. In the fantastic Langston Hughes poem, let America be America again," he says. "Oh, let America be America again—the land that never has been yet, and yet must be—the land where every man is free." And here we see an idea of the nation as something that must, or hopefully will, pay back its promises, even if those promises are, uh, you know, based on lies. Similarly, in Marxist historiography, people pay attention to the oppressed, to the workers, to uh, the people who are constantly ground down by history, because there's a promise that by studying them, by bringing their stories to light, by allowing us to see the world as it is, that we can change society, that there is a future out there for us, one that is more equitable and more just. But with the Anthropocene, the future seems to end. We seem to be heading really quickly off of a cliff, and that makes our history really dire. It it seems to drain it of hope. So Chakrabarty, one of the great uh, post-colonial thinkers uh, who has been wrestling with the idea of the Anthropocene, argues about this problem. He says that we need, as historians now, to connect natural history and human history, to understand that they've always been connected, that shoving them apart was in part of a, a set of claims made by historians uh, uh, that were not valid at the time. But he also admits that this leads to some deep problems. It Uh, makes it really difficult to make claims for the kind of post-colonial history that Chakrabarti wrote. It makes difficult uh, claims that we should be talking about the expansion of human liberty, because it seems like all of this expansion of human liberty that we've been talking about, the good side of that poem, Let America Be America Again, is resting on the free and unsustainable energy of coal. And when you take that away, we might go back to feudalism. And when we talk about humans on the scale that we need to, on the scale of species being humans as a geological event, it seems to efface all of the particularity that post-colonial studies has been calling for. All of the deep and intense study into local difference and how local difference is challenged and challenges the imposition of larger power structures. That seems to fall away when the larger power structures are not states or nations, but are, you know, the Natural archive, the 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 grinding steamroller of the sheer fact of environmental destruction. Now, from another perspective, Bruno Latour, the the irascible uh, sociologist, argues that we should give uh, objects agency. That we should understand all of human life as being. Um, the co-production of individuals and networks and objects. And I, from this, it, it sounds very strange, but in this, Latour wants us to see human activity as not just humans interacting with the world, but humans being in partnership with other humans and with things. When you think about a family, you shouldn't just think about a family. You should think about the house that they live in, the job that they work in, the uh, roads that they drive on, the food that they eat. That we're all enmeshed in these networks of objects and ideas and information. But despite that, and I'm 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 a you know if I'm a, a dyed-in-the-wool anything, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool uh, uh, actor network theory guy. I, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that in the exam because I don't want to get beaten by making that claim. Say that as you may, but making the claim that objects have agency seems to degrade the individual. It seems to rob us of political power. It seems to make us uh, start advocating for weird claims like the rights of trees and coal and the ocean, which it seems deeply anti-human, deeply wrong. But I don't think it's wrong. I think that it's a really essential way that we have to start thinking about human history in order to start to shift our focus so that we can see how daily human activity, how political decisions, how cultural decisions affect uh, the world as a world. And so to talk about that, I want to talk about the influence of non-humans in history. At the center of this project is a big, broad claim that modernity should be seen as a connection between culture and energy. Changes in culture uh, affect the way that humans uh, use energy, Uh, You can think of this technologically. We make new sorts of machines that can harness energy. You can also think about this um, from a more loosey-goosey cultural standpoint. Norms of consumption, behaviors of marking status, uh, they also change the way that people use energy. And you can think of it as the way that energy changes culture, that the wider availability of cheap energy degrades uh, manual labor, that the availability of cheap energy allows there to be very uh, uh, quick mechanical processes done by machines, which change highly dexterous labor, Th- that we should be seeing history as a co-evolution of culture and uh, energy resources. I want to tell that story. That's the story that I want to begin to tell with my dissertation. But I think that we're still attempting to To think through those consequences. I don't think that yet there's a book that helps me discuss how the era of cheap energy and the era of the liberal subject interact. There's a few, but I I, I don't think that we're all the way there. So instead of talking about that, I want to talk about smaller processes that we can trace through more concretely. The first is drugs. So here we can see really clearly how material life and culture co-evolve together, how they are constantly interacting. Or to use a less social science and more humanistic word, they co-constitute one another. So we know that drugs affect the body and the brain, and by affecting the body and the brain, they produce particular kinds of mental states. We also know that these particular kinds of mental states are deeply culturally constructed. In some cultures, alcohol is associated with violence, and drunk people get more violent. In other cultures, alcohol is associated with sleepiness or lasciviousness or uh, with flushing your face or not. There's a fantastic experiment where uh, people test the alcohol flush reaction. You may know about this. Some people, when they drink, they don't have a particular enzyme. Excuse me. They underproduce a particular enzyme that breaks down alcohol. I think alcohol dehydrogenase, and this causes their face to flush. So there's a great experiment that was done. Um, People uh, are given beer there's a control group that's given alcohol-free beer and an uh, a experimental group that's given beer with alcohol. And the experimenters sit down and they interview the people who are given this beer. And they say, have you been given alcohol-free beer or beer with alcohol in it? People who believe that they are drinking alcohol beer act as if they're drinking alcoholic beer people who believe that they're drinking non-alcoholic beer act as if they're not drunk at all. So you get this moment where uh, an interviewer asks a, a, an interviewee, have you been given alcohol or not? And the interviewee goes, look, I'm absolutely sure that I have not been given alcohol. And the interviewer asks why. And the interviewer says, because when I drink alcohol, my face flushes. And I my face isn't flushed, so I haven't been given alcohol. And then the interviewer says... Actually, you're the experimental group. You're drinking alcohol. And immediately, instantly, the woman's face flushes. There's something deep going on here with how our expectations of drugs influence their actual behavior. That being said, there's also a really clear limit on how much uh, drugs are socially constructed. No culture is going to associate alcohol with uh you know level-headed hard work no culture is going to associate caffeine with uh revelry and excess so there's a clear way in which culture is bounded by uh, actual material constraints the story that we have of the 18th 19th and 20th centuries is the story of a widening availability of drugs and thus a widening of people's choices about what kind of drug experiences that they have. I want to just play off of two drinks here, alcohol and coffee. Before the 18th century, uh, usually the drink of sociability and the drink of most daily life was beer. This was because alcohol was often um, much cleaner than water, because alcohol has to be boiled and refined and fermented, and so it's actually relatively free of disease, and because there just weren't many alternatives. Starting in the 17th century, these alternatives came online, coffee, tea, and chocolate. In the 18th century, these become uh, cheap enough to be in the reach of most people. And this gives people a choice about how they want to get high that I think is actually really important. People are now able to make a choice that when they sit down with their friends, do they drink alcohol and have the particular convivial experiences that are associated with alcohol? Drinking toasts, being loyal, getting drunk. chatting, having excess and, and 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 overeating? Or do they want the experiences that are associated with coffee? Do they want to be sober, hardworking, forward thinking, self controlled, thoughtful, curious? These Associations are deeply culturally constructed. The way that coffee is constructed in Britain, for example, is directly linked with the fact that it's brought into daily circulation by groups of virtuosos who have a kind of competitive upper class status thing going on about uh, the consumption of exotic goods. This makes the coffee house an extension of virtuoso sociability, where people go to the coffee house not just to drink coffee, but also to show their curiosity, to talk about important things, to seem smart, to show that they are high status by their, you know, disinterested pursuit of intellectual life. But that's not to say that the caffeine didn't have anything to do with that. We know that caffeine makes us harder workers. We know that caffeine makes us more forward thinking. And so I think that caffeine, the wide prevalence of caffeine, allows there to be a new formation of, uh, let's call it class consciousness, or a new formation of uh, what everyday life is. And for some people, urban, literate, forward-thinking, we might call them middle-class or bourgeois, this allows the development of new social spaces, of new sociability. One that I think is deeply material, one that's drenched in coffee, not beer. Wolfgang Schivelbusch reminds us that there's actually physical changes that happen to you when you are a lifelong coffee drinker versus a lifelong beer drinker. Uh, contemporaries at the, switch from coffee to, uh, uh, at the switch from beer to coffee would say that uh, coffee dried you out. Now, why would they say that? Well, because if you drink coffee every day instead of beer, you're going to get thinner. You're going to have less of a beer belly because you're drinking less beer. And this means that people might even have been able to tell coffee drinkers from beer drinkers by looking at them, because coffee drinkers would tend to be less fat. So, this story, this story of the deep influence, the deep material and cultural influence of drugs, is wrapped into one of the big stories that I've been talking about throughout these podcasts the expanding market due to, let's call it, capitalism, for want of a better word. Tea, coffee, chocolate, they all come from international trade. They're all produced in non-European locations, and they're all traded through the massive world system where silver travels west to east, and goods and cotton and slaves travel east to west. Tea and coffee are just part of this great Uh, you know cycle of trade. So let's move on to the second element of non-human involvement in history uh, and that is pollution. Now I want to argue against the easy answer to this question. We might talk about pollution the same way that some cultural historians talk about traditional culture. It happened because of the industrial revolution. That is a little bit too simple a story. I I think that we have to understand human understanding of the environment as something much deeper than simply the Industrial Revolution happened and made everything different. So humans have, of course, been affecting the natural world for a long time. Another one of the big claims of my research here is that the line between human and nature is completely unnatural, that there is no line, that we're always co-evolving with our environment. And part of that is that there's no pre-modern peace with the natural world. There's no intuitive time where humans lived in perfect harmony with the environment. We can talk about a ton of stuff about this. We can talk about the fact that before coal got popular... People burned wood in their homes, and this meant that people's homes were incredibly smoky and led to widespread lung damage. We can just talk about the deforestation that happens whenever humans settle in a place and need to chop down trees to get wood for heating and cooking. We can talk about uh, the desification of uh, ancient sites of uh, human agriculture, like what happened in Mesopotamia. We can talk about the extinction of megafauna that happened at the end of the last ice age, which is deeply associated with the presence of humans. It seems that where humans go, we hunt out the other big animals. So there's not ever a time when humans have not been influenced in the environment. This recognition leads some, I think, misguided environmental historians to claim that the Anthropocene really begins at the, you know, development of agriculture. But that's mistaking the fundamental change in scale that happened over the past 300 years. So let's talk about that change in scale and how it actually affects people's appreciation of uh, humans' potential to influence the environment. So, one of the first uh, moments that people can understand environmental degradation, or pollution, or whatever you want to call it, is through the settlement of islands. As uh, Europeans moved west, they first uh, uh, colonized what we might call the Near Atlantic. Uh, These are the Canary Islands, the Azores, all of those islands off the coast of North, North Africa that lie somewhere about a third of the way between Europe and Africa and the New World. And these were initially really exciting things for European colonizers. And we shouldn't even call them colonizers, because they barely colonized anything at this point. They were very excited things for the mercantilist monarchical governments of the 15th century. Why? Because they had different environments. They promised to be places where Europeans could grow the expensive tropical produce that they were spending so much money on getting from China and the Far East. So on these islands, people started to farm the stuff that they wanted, sugar, attempts to make spices. However, island ecosystems are very delicate. Especially tropical island ecosystems. This is because they have thin soil and because they're really closed systems, and small changes to these closed systems can have big effects. And soon people were realizing that uh, human activity was causing deep problems. Uh, We can see this on Mauritius. Uh, uh, Human activity was causing massive deforestation, which was being associated in some ecologists' minds uh, with. Uh, the destruction of the soil. There were other stories of mariners putting goats on islands and then coming back and having the island completely destroyed. Rats and other synanthropes colonizing these islands quicker than the humans could, like rabbits in Australia. And this made people pay attention to the connection between human activity and the environment and uh, the possibility that humans could destroy uh tropical Edens. Now, prior to this, I should just mention what people thought happened when they thought if there was a connection between human activity and climate, it was a beneficial one. People thought that uh, when humans cultivated the earth, they made the climate warmer and better and more amenable for humanity. This is because of a fundamental weird thing about the climate. Uh, As you know, Uh, Europe is actually really warm for its latitude. Uh, Britain is on the same latitude as uh, parts of Canada. It's really far north. It should be really cold. We know now that it's warm by the Gulf Current. But people at the time didn't know that. People at the time went over to Canada and they were like, wow, this is really cold. What are people doing wrong there? What were they doing wrong? Well, they weren't farming. A linked story is the discovery of coal pollution. As coal is being used increasingly more in British cities, it starts to have deep effects on people's daily lives. this is obvious in the North where massive coal burning to fire the cotton mills and the iron foundries that we talk so much about leads to dense clouds of smoke around cities that damage people's lungs, stunt growth, lead to vitamin D deficiency and rickets, uh, and also coat the buildings and the forests and the cities with black soot that cause acid rain that you know, destroys ancient monuments. And this leads to there being a slow recognition that there's a connection between the burning of coal smoke and the destruction of the natural environment and a bunch of civil society organizations whose job it is uh, to solve this. Uh, Things like the Coal Abatement Society, the National Trust, um, and other civil society organizations that try to save the the outside world from the pressures of industrialization. I was going to go a lot more deeply into this, but I see that we're at 28 minutes and that's like a a list and a half. So I have to cut myself short. I want to just undermine the story of pollution a little bit, because I think that it's true. I think that The increase in trade and in the use of energy causes really dramatic changes to the way that humans interact with their environment. But I wanted to use these stories as a way of kind of presaging, uh, you know, how humans deal with the problem of global warming. I wanted to be able to make a link between. Uh, people in London in the 19th century discover that coal smoke is destroying London with our contemporary problem of people in uh, the world understanding that our burning of the fossil fuels are destroying the world. I wanted to be able to make that connection. Why? Because the solution then is in my favorite thing, civil society. Civil society pushed the British state and the British people to look for alternatives to coal. Civil society made it a problem. Civil society generated the data that allowed people to see that this sort of stuff was happening. Civil society took the idea of acid rain and started to popularize it so that people were worried about it. Civil society identified uh, at-risk communities like old churches and monuments that people could get worked up about so they could make stories that would lead to political change. But I don't think that civil society, in and of itself, can solve the global warming crisis. And saying that just hurts me really deeply, um, because I wish it were true. I think that global warming is a special case, because it only exists as an abstract entity. It's very hard to see materially, in an everyday sense, in that deep emotional sense, what global warming is doing to the world. Because uh, carbon dioxide is invisible. The changes that we know are happening are happening on such slow a scale that it does not seem real. And there's not a lot of materiality to it. We very rarely see gasoline. We never see carbon dioxide. There's no With coal, you touch coal and it's dirty. You smell coal smoke and you choke. You see acid rain crumbling the buildings around you. You see the coal smoke coating the trees around you. You know you're able to feel coal in a way you're not able to feel global warming. We know about global warming only through these kinds of you know, bloodless, dry, abstract entities that have been, you know, politically suspect for so long. Scientists, experts, media. That's the way that we can tell that this is happening. And it just gives too much doubt. There's too much you know, opportunity for us to turn our back on the reality of what's happening. It's even harder. Lots of people make the connection between the uh, climate denialists and tobacco denialists, but it's even harder to make the link between climate change and the daily activities that cause it. Tobacco smells. We know that one of the big Uh, elements of the anti-tobacco campaigns were uh, around secondhand smoke because we all know, non-smokers all know how nasty it is to go into a place with a smoker where a smoker's been smoking for a really long time. There's nothing like that with global warming. So to close, and I know this episode has gone far too long, um, I just want to mention some other elements that we can talk about the problem of putting non-humans into history. Um, there is uh, uh, ecology itself. Uh, Crosby, in his book, Ecological Imperialism, has a great story explaining uh, the expansion of European settler colonies by particular kinds of ecological uh, 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 factors, particularly being temperate places far away from Eurasia that are insulated uh, from um, the disease colonies that that Europeans are, are, are open to. Another one is the Colombian exchange itself. And I have a very quick and uh, interesting fact about this. We can identify part of the rise in consumer society as uh, the import of new kinds of foods that allow people to shift cultivation to consumer goods. Great example of this is in China, where the ability to grow North American sweet potatoes on marginal lands allowed people to plant more mulberry trees and so get more silk for the international economy. Um, Another way that we can see this is through diseases. There's uh, McNeil's uh, Plagues and Peoples that does just this. Um, Another way we might be able to look at this is through evolution itself. Uh, We know that human beings have evolved in particular ways to deal with our natural natural environment. We know that a large proportion of uh, Western Europeans are able to digest lactose as adults because uh, Northern Europe had a sunlight deficit and drinking milk helped people get the vitamin D that they would have otherwise gotten from sunlight. Um, we can also look uh, more uh, detailed at how new materials like steel changed people's culture. Thanks very much for listening to this uh, somewhat bloated episode of Making of a Historian. If you like us, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, tweet questions to me at @mackieteacher. Mackey Teacher. Um, thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. It, I'll speak to you guys this afternoon, uh, probably about uh, the natural human divide.